My name is Kim Weeks, and this is the Weeks Well. You know how everybody's thumbprint is different? I guess this does mean that the way that anybody begins and then continues and then deepens and expands their practice is a totally individual and thumbprint, you know, kind of a deal. But I walked away from my conversation with Sarah Powers thinking about the way that great teachers like her cohere so many universal qualities about being human, about loving and losing and connecting and retreating, looking in and looking out, and how those qualities show up in a practice, in a body, and in a mind. So talking to Sarah Powers today just added this next deep layer of insight certainly to continue to use the word that really is at the core of her teaching, the core of her original book, Insight Yoga, and certainly the ground, as she talked about, of her practice. And this most recent book, she's of course written in 2021, Lit From Within. I just could not have enjoyed my conversation with Sarah more the way that we were able to discuss, and it really was a conversation today the many aspects of life that we're facing in modernity and what it is that modern yoga in all of its different iterations can bring to the experience of freedom, the experience of love and compassion. And most of all, and what I, as you'll hear at the very end of the conversation, I love so much about Sarah's teaching, really the yoga of relationship, the yoga of being with others, the yoga of enabling or helping manifest every moment as a teaching, every moment as a way to be present. So here's Sarah Powers. Enjoy the conversation. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. We're continuing with what I'm calling yin month, or maybe it's going to be insight month, (laughs) but basically hopefully we'll have Ty Powers very soon and Bernie Clark soon after that. Enjoy. Hi, Sarah. It's so good to see you after these few years. (laughs) And you, I'm so glad that you reached out. It's nice to connect um, because we're right on the heels of uh, a conversation I had with Paul Grilly, and it, you know, brings me to the conversation in this podcast, which has been for more than two years now exploring what yoga lineage is, why or whether it matters, and what it might look, or in this case, sound like, um, for long time, and forgive me, sort of master practitioners to, you know, uh, get together and talk about their years of experience and what those experiences and those insights offer to newer practitioners, practitioners who've been at it for a long time, or even other teachers, because that's essentially the composition of this audience. So I'd love to start with your path into yin yoga. We really unpacked it a ton with Paul. And as you and I discussed in our email, it was a nice place to start because you, it's so interesting to look at your work over these years because 
yin yoga may be one of the sources, but there's many. And and the multidisciplinary way that I really try to uh, unpack in these conversations, it seems to me there's so many different ways you could bring in. So I just love to start maybe with yin yoga and go from there. <laughs> sure. I knew Paul when I was teaching at Yoga Works in the 80s. And he was exploring, as you probably heard from him already, different ways of practicing and sharing. And I was very into Ashtanga and love the, the flow of internal focus that the regularity of certain poses allows a freed up attention to be more energetic. When I was starting out, I found that really illuminating. And yin yoga had very few poses. So Ashtanga has quite a few in first series or second series. And yet there is a sameness. You know what's coming next eventually. So what's different is internal. And in a way, yin yoga has a complementary similarity in that there's only a few that really target the areas of congestion at the intersection of joint sites that I need the most. And so every day I do maybe six yin poses. And each one is so familiar on the outer level, like how to get into it, what to use as complementary aid if needed, if there's a compromised area and so forth. But that takes so little time that the rest of the focus can be really uh, an interiorization that is constantly changing. And one practice is quite mobile and the other is quite still. And yet the inner landscape in each becomes the main focus of the practice. So they just felt like they fit really well together for me in those early years in the 80s. When I left LA, the practice actually fell away for me. And I continued with more of the alignment-based disciplines that I had already learned doing an Iyengar training in those years in LA and the flow practice. And eventually really felt like my mind had nuances that my energetic practices didn't have the time to excavate enough and that I really needed to sit still and learn to meditate. And looking at the different lineages that shared how to meditate, I was just attracted to the Buddhist languaging. There was something so welcoming, familiar, and simple about the invitation to start with the breath and then open to the body as a yoga practitioner, it, it felt like a, a home ground, like great, start with the body. That's what I started with in any spiritual practice. Really, for me, the first one was starting with food because I'd been unwell. So the body felt like the landscape of joy or suffering as a young woman. It was very hard to have a lot of energy for others and for life if I was unwell. And so that was really my road in. And after becoming 
familiar with meditating and going on some retreats, I ran into Paul again. And now this is maybe a decade after we had both taught together in LA. And I was so struck by this similarity now of meditation and yoga, particularly the yin style. And that I wanted a place in my body to energetically settle and then discover what my attitude was like towards what was happening within and around me. And so it became a meditative art to do my yoga practice in a whole new way. And I really appreciated Paul's understanding at that time was very much meridian based. And so the Chinese medicine feature also addressed my health needs. So all of that was kind of putting these features together that widened my capacity to start my day very personalized in my practice and then become more universal in my my focus of a mind that could tune in beyond just what the body and personality needed. And so every day I practice in, I practice a vinyasa or energetic strength-based style and meditation. And they feel all like one vehicle for growth for learning for staying as healthy as possible and for uh, just embodied wakefulness do you there's so many questions i want to ask from that because i really appreciate thank you the sort of linear feel of this i mean linear might not be the word but sort of you know it's it's almost like i mean the image i have is that you have this practice it starts with the internal and the waves of understanding just keep kind of rippling outward and and you in riding those waves or catching those waves kept finding an ever widening uh, and you said it yourself capacity and those and, and and so the question i have is that outer capacity my image or my feeling of it is your discovery of sitting still being in this these long meditations do you think that that's where one in practice is likeliest to touch the universal practices the practices that really do again, I can't think of a better word, touch the interpersonal, the global, the universal? Uh, Both. I do feel like stillness is going to put us right up against our personal obstacles and give us supports and insights for how those don't have to condemn us to just being stuck in our conditioning, that they can be a gateway into compassion for others who don't even have resources of teachings or practices to, to develop a way through. And as we continue, as I have continued to allow certain patterns to be seen and certain humility around how they have their own kind of force to enforce my reactivity even when I would prefer otherwise and then to 
use that as a gateway for self-compassion and then how that extends to interpersonal compassion and how that way through becomes more transpersonal. But as that noise all quiets down about I, me, mine and how I am and compared to who I was or how you are or the world at large, as that really all takes more of a background seat, the foreground of the act of listening itself tuned me in and can tune one in to a dimension in which the, the questions that we're asking and the way that we're receiving information shifts to another dimension. And that has a profound effect on the personality structure outside those practice sessions. So I'm not the woman that I was. And no one is, as life and experience constantly does teach us, it's just that this is an acceleration as a practitioner to really use the insight methods that are well-worn through the ages and through these other vehicles of being human in order to really be willing to grow on purpose. And in order to grow, we have to see where we're stuck, you know, to be able to meet my suffering in order to know the absence of suffering and make the whole spectrum of interest. Yeah, I mean, I was taking that. I love, I love the, I'm sure you've said it many times before, but it's the first time I've heard that uh, intention to grow on purpose. Because even as you were leading into saying that, I was thinking back to the conversation I had with Paul in which we talked a lot about the intersection of the intention to live that comes energetically as he was describing it, you know, from the upper chakras down where it meets the body and meets the karma and meets the difficulties of just being in this, you know, frankly, flesh and blood and, and, and meets your own genetic code, which has its own mm. programming to live as it does in this life. And so maybe because I've crested the sort of um, halfway mark of life, I hope, and gone through a lot of um, strong and really engrossing and interesting physiological changes as my body has turned from being a lunar cyclical being to a some other being <laughs> as I, you know, get over 50 and get older. And so I've been thinking a whole lot about or observing a lot how, especially through COVID, how also the practice changed. And I'm not trying to personalize this, but I'm just thinking about how much of the physical we discussed. And so back to your growing on purpose and the acceleration that occurs when you have this privilege, I guess is the word and intention to practice. Do What do you think about the concept of moving meditation? One of the things I learned when we when I first started doing these webinars and podcasts through Yoga Alliance back in 2020, we were all in lockdown and we were doing just one after another, after another, after another, mostly on the scientific research on yoga, as I talked to you about in the email. I was exposed to thousands of practitioners who aren't really clear who their teacher's teacher's teacher is because they've cycled through learning 
all of those, quote, generations of teachers in like a year or two years because of the way the market has enabled our learning of yoga. So I've, I've, I've wondered a lot about how physical our practice is. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean that there it is. It's sort of this physical way that we begin to examine the interiority of our own experience. But then there's music. And then there's a lot of um, kind of Instagrammable self-care language and imagery that to me feels like it takes you out of that interiority before you're able to really stay. And so in back to growing on purpose, how, in your 35 years of teaching, how have you seen the sort of trending of people growing on purpose and your part in that? But I do see you having contributed over these years in one after another way of helping people stay in the interiority of their experience, whether it's through long holds of yin, whether it's through you know these direct experiences I had from you as your student when you came to Washington, where we would sort of have been in this yin experience and then instantly we would sort of burst into a yang place and still be holding those more heated, strong poses and continuing to examine the interiority and then listening to your stories and just witnessing the teaching that comes from the, this month. Do you all still do, and Thai still do that? Sit for a whole month? Do you still go to South Asia and meditate for a whole we, month or two maybe? I, so. A lot there. <laughs> and it. All wonderful. First of all, your conversation with Paul sounds so engaging and delightful and makes me definitely want to tune in and hear that. And then you talked about moving meditation, moving yoga, how one can integrate that as a a, a viable vehicle, for sure. And then how yoga has changed in the many decades and how I see students today and what they need. And whether or not I still go on long retreats. <laughs> and well, since I've seen you, I did do the privilege of, of many times of long retreating and even took five months out and did that where the main requirement from my daughter, which was the hardest reason to go away for any extended period of time, even with an adult daughter, she's 31 now, is at that time we would go on Zoom and she would speak and just want to see me once a week. And I would hear all that was going on with her. And then we would just, you know, blow a kiss and, and wait another week. And so I made sure that I did a retreat in places that had Wi-Fi so that I could connect with her. And that worked really well. And there is a feeling, having done extended retreat, there's like a, a, a tipping point of, for my journey, of the seeking for a settledness that felt like it needed more and more time to discover, that got so satiated by that, that even today, it dropped me into a, a different place where I'm no longer seeking that 
time in that same way. There's more of a, a natural fluidity between the practice life and the worldly life, between being this couple that we still are for all of these years and having this ever-growing community and then feeling uh, in touch with the, the human species and where we are in our evolution right now. So moving meditation uh, as a yoga practice, I think is one of the things that drew me to it and hope that it continues to be uh, something that people are exposed to. So they might gravitate towards a, an ancient vehicle for being in touch with our physicality that is on the essential level, constantly vibrant and alive and nothing is actually fully still. That's what we know from physics. We know as an acupuncturist, we, we know when we get very still and listen, that if you listen long enough in the silence, something manifest will arise. And if you look at manifestation long enough, you'll see its own absence. You know, so in a way, that's the heart sutra, that form is emptiness and emptiness as form. And relaxing with the paradox of that, I think, is one of the, the gifts of staying long enough as a practitioner to go through the dry spells where no deep insights, no big change afoot, and yet just knowing that placing oneself in the, the field of interest without looking for particular results became itself a way of developing patience that doesn't feel like a, an efforted special thing. It's just like a lack of expectation that used to be there. And so now practice, I don't even need to call it that in the same way. Like I just had, I have a very much younger than me sister who's more like a daughter to me because she's 24 years younger. She just had a baby and she lives far away and her and her boyfriend and the eight week olds came to stay and they were in a small cottage in Portugal. And so they took up the living room for two weeks with this newborn and with nowhere to be because they're in the place I usually practice. There was just a, a, a sense of fluidity in our interrelating together where being with the baby or enjoying her, enjoying some time to herself and a cup of coffee was all part of the definition of being awake to the preciousness of, of simplicity of life being lived. There wasn't a me that was like, oh, I'm going to need to remove myself from them to make sure I can do this and that in the same way as I used to have as a, a younger practitioner that had such a, maybe a, a bit more than a bit at times of angst that my practice gave me a ground and eventually it does. And then that ground becomes the ground and practice becomes a kind of living art. But I must say, I still set the timer and have formal practice, but it can be like this morning at the beach with the dogs running around me and watching the waves and walking along the sand. It doesn't have the rigid boundaries. And I would say, that for practitioners who are new, the less familiar we are with our inner compass and our own kind of Vajra confidence, you know, like that, that diamond-like luminosity that is the nature of 
of all sentient beings, the less familiar we are with that, the more helpful it is to have teachers and lineage and structure and boundaries, because we're going to need to kick up against that and see what works and what doesn't for so long. And then as those start to soften, now, I mean, my lineage, my teacher, it's like, it's the voice of the universe and, and the invisible guides and, and the, the, the beautiful pine trees in, in the space that I'm in. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. There's a couple of things I'd love to pin in that. And I really appreciate the sort of naming or I don't know, just d- describing for newer practitioners the idea that teachers and structure and boundaries, I think I remember, I think I heard you say those three things sort of all together, like essentially synonymizing those three. A teacher provides both structure and boundaries and structure comes through a teacher and boundaries come through structure, you know? And so that is that was that a generally yes. accurate hearing? Okay. So... I've been thinking a lot about, and and lots of conversations on this podcast have come up around how students, like, if I may, you and me in the 80s and the 90s, even, even in the early aughts, the connections that people were making in cases like this were far fewer because there were fewer practitioners and fewer teachers, but also more analog. So there was this opportunity. I remember Paul talking about years ago, the way he remembered it was that if you were, you know, a devoted student of your teacher and you were there, let's just say for six full months or something or a year or whatever, and the teacher was going to go away to see the family in Vancouver, or I don't know, that the teacher could potentially ask you, could you just step in and be my student teacher while I'm away? You've mm-hmm. taken in these direct transmissions from me. And I guess for the audience, direct transmission, I think we might throw around in this world uh, without describing it, the idea that there's this energetic transference of knowledge and wisdom and love, you know, from the teacher to the student. And that's how teacher training occurred, <laughs> where it was really this <laughs> right. apprenticeship model. There was no formal teacher trainings per se yet. Yeah. And I don't know that anybody was counting hours. You know, I've studied no, for X. No, no. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and be, because, you know, time, this time-space continuum is tricky. It, it's not linear. And so time spent is not necessarily depth spent and vice versa. And so mm-hmm. I, I just think about the, gosh, the luck I feel like I had to first be introduced to yoga, this is again, to personalize it, in Berlin when I was a college student. And it just so happened that my, you know, in quotes, just so happened that the, my host, my host was a yoga practitioner and took me to a kundalini class. It was either kundalini or integral yoga, but I don't remember because I was just barely Mm -hmm. learning German and I didn't, but it was nice that the class was taught in Sanskrit, you know, or at least Sanskrit <laughs> words. And everybody there but me was wearing white. And it was a very deeply spiritual, mm. ritualistic mm-hmm. practice and obviously still sticks with me today. And then I wound up in New York and wound up looking up yoga in the phone book, you know, in the yellow pages and just found integral yoga because it seemed like that was a good qualifier for the word yoga. It was, only, it was mm-hmm. just a syntactical reason that I 
went, or dis- descriptive reason I went for, but those practices were, were coming from, if I may, a depth in this sort of analog transmission that became replicated more and more and over and over as, as these decades have gone. And so back to everything I just heard you describe, I think about new students and how they might find a place because there's so many descriptors in front of the word yoga now, acro, goat, you know, vin, vin, yin, you know, has now become a thing, you know, have you heard of this? Vin, yeah. Yeah, 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 vin, yin is big in, in Denver, at least in places that I've seen and a place that I taught briefly. And, but yet, as I talked to Paul about, so just to come back to kind of the yin descriptor, yin yoga may wind up being the thing that holds the center of some lineage-based thread right now in yoga studios, which generally speaking, have become very multidisciplinary, pretty much divested from any other lineage, like vinyasa is the thing, or flow, or power, or hot. It's not ashtanga and Iyengar yoga and Bikram, if I'm, you know, but, but, but rather these like lowercase nouns, these not, you know, sort of quote proper nouns. And so it's interesting to see how I call it, you know, the kind of consumerization, sort of free market, late free stage market capitalization of yoga, where the consumer may well be because these businesses are businesses, right? So they're sort of driven in a way by consumer demand and hope and desire and need. And so where do you see yin in the context of all of this outside of anything else you've already described? Because I do want to get into your book, the first one, and then the second one, which I was so happy to learn about when we did the research on you. But let's talk a little bit about it. I mean, is that, does that sound new to you or the way that I'm describing yin as this, I would go so far as to say lineage that you and Paul and others have really brought to the ground of modern Mm -hmm. yoga practice. How do you see it there? You know, when I first started sharing it, because I was a teacher of yoga for 10 years before I brought it into the mix. And at that time, I was very much uh, a bridge between Ashtanga and Iyengar. And I loved that the community that would come into the room, if it was listed as a yin yoga class, was not defined by one or the other or any number of practitioners. A lot of Bikram people would come, people who had done integral yoga, Shivananda yoga, which is where I started, people who were meditators. It, 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 It loosened the identity structure around which yoga are you following And that's the purest way. So just study that. Everybody was welcome. Everybody could let go of everything they had learned around what was proper in terms of how many breaths and, you know, physical attunement to what's going on where. Where the femur goes. (laughs) Exactly. And so the languaging got to be quieter. Some people would just enjoy the silent space. Paul at that time being such a humorous person would keep people laughing. And 
I found that it was a place where in the beginning I read the Bhagavad Gita to students because they were kind of captive audience and many people hadn't bridged the philosophy behind yoga. So what a perfect environment for that. And then the Dhammapada, people knew Buddhism very tangentially. So, okay, let's just start with some of the original texts. And eventually I would bring some paragraph of somebody I was inspired by. And then eventually I would just share what I was teaching. So the the evolution of my own capacity to understand and then offer teachings on uh, the poetics of personal unfolding was allowed in that space. And when it was my other classes, there was only Shavasana where people were needing to just be quiet and tune out. They'd already heard enough from the teacher. So it allowed everyone to gather. It allowed a format in which other environmental features like psychological inquiry could come into the space, philosophical uh, dissection of text. And that just grew the interest in the students coming who weren't there for their physical fitness practice and or their energetic attunement. And yet when they started hearing a little bit about how it's a kind of needless acupuncture session for yourself, it's like, oh, I'm not just stretching or in pain. I'm also helping engorge some of these organs with coaxing chi into these meridian patterns. How great is that? So I actually felt all that right from the beginning, which is why it, it elaborated on what I thought I could do as a teacher so beautifully. Because I was really like, you know, I'm not a physical fitness exercise coach. I may need to step away and go back to the schooling I had been in to become a psychotherapist, where people really wanted to look at deeper questions, were open, were wanting to listen. The yoga environment didn't have that to the degree that I needed to be fulfilled for a lifelong vocation at that time. That feels even more in the mix now that more people are meditating, more people are doing yin, and so it's expected. And I, with Thai, started in 2010, the Insight Yoga Institute, so that people who really wanted to bridge these things felt like there were plenty of other people in, in a like-minded sphere globally that you could feel community with. And today we are even more involved, energized, and connected to that community than ever. And most of the ways that we teach are live, are on practice retreats. And yeah, there's trainings involved. And then there's we have now over 30 endorsed teachers who have weekly online classes for people to be involved with. So it feels very rich at this point. And, and what I do miss, I'll say, is the decades where there were conferences and there were yoga magazines where we all felt like we were intersecting more with our peers, with practitioners who were doing different, interesting things, even if they were very far away from what we had studied. There was more communication, more engagement that way. So... I'm glad you're doing this podcast. You're you're 
kind of that link bringing us together for people to hear we're all still out there you just might not know it <laughs> exactly there's well and that's it's in it's you know, so many things it's so true and I do it's so interesting to me the idea you know it, it's funny because I've been emailing with Eric Schiffman for uh, it's almost a year now and I'm like please. Oh, who I adore and oh I, I know I'm like please will you come talk on the podcast and initially he's like maybe and then he was like mm. And then like, please, you know, <laughs> he's, he's one of the only ones I'm having to work so hard to get to. So Eric, if you're out there, uh, um, but, but, you know, one of the things I loved about learning from him, Eric, you know, ultimately evolved his teaching to be called freedom yoga. And he was talking about almost what a redundancy that is. <laughs> yoga sort of is freedom and freedom Same is yoga. With insight yoga. Yeah. I mean, all yoga is about developing insight. Yes. Exactly. And I want to get back to actually that name, which I'm certainly assuming has led to your most recent book. But, you know, it, it strikes me that if here we are and the deeper we get into the practice, the more freedom we feel and the more freedom we'd like to assert in our interpersonal relationships in a loving, kindness, compassionate way and for the world. It, it seems like it necessarily means that yoga, the practice, sort of aided and abetted, I kind of feel like my words are now starting to be words I'm not so happy about using, but still by the free market, by people sort of, you know, I've all, I mean, you and I have discussed this, we discussed this way back when, like, the idea of teaching what you're also selling and how to reconcile those two things at a for-profit studio is actually also an educational center and, 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 and what that does to the, again, exchange and transmission of learning. And so the reason I'm so committed to this, these conversations and this podcast and the overall effort of multidisciplinary inquiry into the practice of yoga is because I don't, especially since the pandemic, I don't quite see it as much. You're right. We're all out there, but not necessarily intersecting for the greater good in the same place at the same time, the conferences, the things like that. Mm -hmm. So it just, it's just interesting to me that freedom is a thing we find and yet we're all pursuing it in our own kind of disciplinary ways. And that's not the word either, but in our own ways. And mm -hmm. I don't know how we get back together except by utilizing technology and media and modernity to do so. It seems to me there's a way we could come back to it. I just keep thinking about the new practitioners who like scroll on Instagram and they're looking for a yoga class or looking for a teacher and I don't know how they find a depth practice in that way. I'm not. I'm just not. Do, do you have any thoughts on that before we go into the insight um, <laughs> stuff? Because I really want to talk about that word and tease it out some. Mm. I was just talking with another one of my sisters about that, that she was saying, you know, I'm really, I'm tired of online. I want to go to a class in person. She lives in Manhattan. She said, please just reach out to anyone you might know, being that I'm in that world that is teaching live again. Because I just want to walk there. I just want to put my mat down. I want to be, you use this word, in the space of direct transmission. That there's an upgrade there that just can't happen with devices in the same way. Certainly it's second best. 
And there's a lot of people who couldn't get to class and classes are, can be expensive because it is a business. So without particularizing one is better than the other, we, we do still want to be in each other's presence. And that feels really fundamental and part of where we are as a crisis in humanity that is not just about the climate. Is it that young people are so scared about their future because of the climate and or is it also because of the meaninglessness of a certain trajectory of living that doesn't give the, the internal resources for getting to know our depth? And past generations, like in the 60s, had to break the patterns in order to find something new. And we're at another point in our history like that right now. And there are so many communities re-emerging that are living on the land, that are living in, in ways that are communally caring and connecting and growing their own food. And there's meaning in how the ancients lived. And I think that's why we were attracted in the 60s, 70s and beyond to yoga, being an ancient way of being a modern human. And it's evolving and yet it also brings up the kind of common insights that are still relevant in the same way as 2,500 years ago when the Buddha was teaching that greed, hatred and delusion collapse any of us particularly when that becomes the, the model of capitalism. And so we're, we're at a place where we can't just fix the climate. And even if that wasn't something that was happening, would there be a dimension of love and health and connection that would be unfolding? So being seekers has always been a, a, a small percentage, but now it's kind of a collective percentage of how do we live as a species? And are we evolving under pressure now? We are having to evolve to becoming different than we were. And we're in a transitional stage. And I find it both terrifying and incredibly interesting and beautiful not to miss, miss out on, on what's going on right in the here and now that we're breathing with. And I think a yoga practice keeps that yoga. Now I mean to uh, include stillness and mind training as it always was meant to include. And now with all of the divisions of titles, it doesn't always. I don't think acro yoga is necessarily going to be very quiet or sitting for very long. <laughs> I'm not totally. sure what it is, but <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sure it's yeah. fun. It sounds fun because I'd love so fun. Piece, but <laughs> you know, traction. I mean, people sit so much, the traction. <laughs> see, like, it sounds great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the Iyengar rope. You know, I've got them over here. We call them the fancy Iyengar ropes, but I'm pretty sure it's also acro yoga. <laughs> I think okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the V in that you said, all I can imagine is that was what I was calling yin yang yoga, that you do vinyasa and you do yin. Is that what it means? It is. Yeah, I think, I think oh, what okay. I, I went to one and, you know, it's like, you know, majority, 
yang or half yang, half movement and half go get the bolsters. And some people were calling it um, supervised nap time. That's what they call the... It's you know, just restorative which, yoga, right? Totally. And well, Iyengar yoga yeah. always had all that, that whole encompassing feature of being still and being very articulate in how you move. Right, exactly. And yeah. and yeah, and in it, it's most skillful recognizing when those longer holds require um, silence and space exactly. and not the language. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we have John Schumacher in common, presenting I, my love. <laughs> oh my gosh, I know. I haven't, there's some, yeah, I will. I will. Yeah, I'm <laughs> absolutely certain he'll send it right back. Mm. Um, so... I'm Tangent Airlines might be taking off one one last time <laughs> because I remember reading years ago. I mean, you know, there's only so much tolerance that I personally myself have to read about climate change. I do, I, it, but I feel sometimes like I force myself because of the terror, having had children and witnessing, you know, having been in this humid, tumid, really swampy area of Washington for 20 years, having lived abroad, mostly in coastal towns, London and Hong Kong and some other places. And now being, you know, at the foot of the Rocky Mountains and just looking at the ground, seeing this dryness and the fear of the fires and sort of, you know, what happens on the other end of that the, the wetness that I sort of experienced and whatever, you know, just fam- my family mostly would, had, had been coastal. So it was sort of, you know, oceanic in my thinking and reading about the red algae that's starting to sort of like, and, and, and the, the, you know, sort of these, these new jellyfish populations and the heating of the oceans mm-hmm. and how differently the, the waters of the world behave. And now being out here and looking at just how, just how parched, you know, the, living out here is and how Mm. the gratitude you feel when you see the rivers, you know, when, when we've had a very wet, you know, year and it's just like, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for just this respite from that feeling of drying out, you know, the Mm. earth in this, in this place. So back to the red, red, green or red algae or whatever, and the heating of the oceans, I was thinking a lot about how viruses are hot energetically and how the changes in people's bodies, the heating up of the oceans can't not be reflected in the internal waters of our own existence, of our own actual bodies. Mm -hmm. And then in comes COVID Mm -hmm. (laughs) as this, in my opinion, correlative iteration of climate change, correlative iteration of the way we are treating the planet and living here and being. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think, I loved, I'm thank you so much for reminding me as a, you know, Gen Xer of what happened in the 60s. I am thinking about how we're at this inflection point again which feels so, such a strong pull to me. And here we are in our yoga practices, continuously going in and developing insights, you know, sort of these, this look 
at the inner body where we not, aren't just looking at ourselves, we're looking at ourselves as social beings because that's what we are. And the social choices we've made for these thousands of years are obviously what have led us to where we are at this moment. So the inner is the outer, basically, as above, you know, so below. And so can you, in the last, you know, time of our podcast, talk a little bit about the trajectory of your insight well, we, and I appreciate, thank you for describing the Insight Yoga community and where you started and where you now are, especially with Ty, who I can't wait to bring on. I'm, I can't wait. I'm so excited to see him and listen to what he's also doing in this part, this world. Um, but tell me about the book, tell this most recent one, and tell me how you decided to talk about that. And the specific thing I think would be for me most interesting, and I think for the audience too, is the manner in which you, different from anybody else I've studied with or learned from or followed, you know, as a teacher, connect not just South Asian philosophical wisdom practices, but also East Asian and Chinese into the same place. I've always found that so hard to do, to articulate in the English language these different practices, but you do it. And that's what I'm so, I'm calling September yin month or September into October yin month, (laughs) or maybe we'll call it inside month because I'm really, I think Bernie Clark hopefully is going to come too, to talk about how you all have expanded this thing called yoga into this bigger thing that captures and articulates and manifests these different wisdom practices all in the same place and time. In my first book, Insight Yoga, I wanted to distill where those intersections lie so that when we do simple yoga poses, we get a almost like transparencies laid on top of each other that then illuminate more about what's happening on different levels of our being. And although in any yoga class, we, if we study philosophically, we're going to hear that there's channels in the body. Often there's talked about as so many or only three. The Ida Pingala and the central channel, there's the Shumna. And in looking for some support in my own health at a certain juncture of my life, I went both to an Ayurvedic consultant and to an acupuncturist and both were helping me in slightly different ways. And I just gravitated towards the languaging of the Chinese medical doctor because it started layering similarly with what was going on in my yoga practice. And he turned out to also be a a Zen practitioner and a, a Taoist herbalist. And so I found that the heating of the body, you brought that up, the heating of the planet and then the heating of the body that in certain constitutions is already likely to become out of balance. And so if, as I did, you go to a teacher who invites you to hold headstand for 15 minutes and your constitution already has a lot of pitta, Ayurvedic languaging, or excess yang, which is more from TCM, that coming out of that 
even if you have exquisite alignment coming out of that can cause more imbalance than balance. So to personalize the yoga practice for what one's constitutional needs are, the true meaning of Vini yoga, yoga designed for the person practicing it, was of interest to me from the beginning. That's why I even went to find a, a teacher and a practice. Then the second book, many years later, more recently, Lit From Within, was for those who, now that we have some structure, we've got practice, we've, we've been exposed now to the meditative arts, the body practices that are more uh, soft tissue as well as muscularly oriented. You know, we understand some about fascia. Now there's all of this wealth of time to develop psychologically and interpersonally. And those don't need to be separate ideas outside what a yoga practitioner is informed by. And they used to be. People used to assume that if you had to go to therapy, you weren't a good enough yoga practitioner or meditator. And I, to marginalize therapy and somehow create a, a sense of shame if you needed it was so 50s. <laughs> it's like, so 50s, oh, no, yeah. No. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I knew I needed it as soon as I heard about it in my yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I knew my parents could have used it. And their yeah. parents and yeah. people oh, I yeah. met at the market. So it just right. felt right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Let's think of yoga, the true meaning of it being integration, of looking at all of these dimensions we coexist in. Even though we are individuals, there is no independence. There's only interdependence. And if I work on myself and my patterns of aggression or of self-abandoning, it's only going to help you and I when we connect. And so we, we have to recognize that we are exposing ourselves every time we speak to the, the clarity or distortions that we carry inside. And we carry each other around in that, in our conversations. And so there's so many podcasts now. There's so many people talking. There's so much news that I was noticing how at this stage of my unfoldment and what I wanted to express in the book, Lit From Within, is that there's a way in which we can have permission to let go of giving away our authority to those who ascribe to being in the know and discover that awareness itself is a knowing nature, not of particulars, but of beingness. And the emphasis on doing things has been so prevalent that we're at this crisis point where I'm And so to take the shamanic view of the sages and use that now as a platform for rebuilding humanity feels possible because we're all going to be in it together. The people on Wall Street are going to be in the boat hoping that the people in New Jersey will actually let them land. (laughs) And so it needs almost to be at a crisis point just as 
I did in order to go, okay, there must be another way to live. It's so human. And so to have conversations with people so different from us and, and listen from a place of, of interest and curiosity and inquiry rather than judgment and distancing and superiority. In order for that to be possible, we're all going to have to be taxed to such a degree, it seems, that, that there's some real hard times ahead. And I feel, as you used the word so early on in our talk, so privileged to have a, a dimension of reality inform me and not just be uh, imaginary, wishful thinking. Something that somebody else from another time zone or who was born somewhere else got to live from. The kind of knowing my marrow, the, the dimension of love and the, the qualities of suffering that obscure it. And to live from there and, and learn from there. Without yoga, I wouldn't have this view. And so I have so much gratitude to wake up with gratitude, to feel like gratitude as you use that feeling of the rivers. It's a generous way of operating. It's, it is to feel from spirit rather than just from personality. And we're going to need to feel really grateful through loss. It just comes out that way, it seems, for the human species. And and hopefully something else will arise on this planet for the few that are left. Right. Yeah. Right. That seems like the perfect place to stop, though. As I told you before we clicked record, I have 700 other questions. <laughs> Sarah Powers, I, there are many on this podcast who are going to be so happy to, well, I mean, we've already, you know, pre-told people we'd bring you in, but I do think that I know that the thousands on this podcast have let me know in various ways, various times, how much study and transmission they continue to look for. So I'm thank you so much for offering it today and for being here with me and talking about all that we did. Oh, thank you, Kim. And really so appreciate your breadth and your depth and your interest in calling me and so many others. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure entirely. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It was produced by Alyssa Yaroshevsky and me and features original music from my former band, Governess. We're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, on weekswell.com and have a newsletter. And we're also now most recently on Substack, exploring in as many media as we can the conversation, practice, and community of being your best self. If you have any ideas on the Weeks Well about guests, about feedback on the show, anything you'd like to know or talk about or dialogue about, hit us up at hello at weekswell.com. We love the feedback. We love the conversation. We hope to see you next time for the next episode of the Weeks Well next week. Bye.